The Gist is sponsored by The Great Courses, engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Fundamentals of Photography. Right now, get 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash gist. It's Thursday, February 19th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. At home with the Netanyahu's, Binyamin, I love saying Binyamin, and Sarah, Bibi and Shmushki. Okay, I made up the Shmushki part, but they do call Binyamin Netanyahu Bibi. So you better be careful because Shmushki's already won a couple of libel and slander suits against the press in Israel. At issue now is how Israel's top couple is going to deal with a report of their household expenses that was released shortly before Israeli elections. It reflects poorly on them in terms of, let us say, thrift. For instance, the Netanyahu's charged $24,000 in takeout food, even though they have a chef on premises. And, and this was the thing that really jumped out at me. They returned a bunch of plastic bottles and they got $1,000 for the bottle deposits and they just pocketed that money, even though the bottles were bought by the government. Shouldn't they be giving that 1000 back to the government? Remember on Seinfeld, another great Jewish leader, that Seinfeld? Remember when Kramer had that ploy to take all the bottles in New York with the five-cent deposit and drive them up to Michigan where the deposit is 10 cents? Silly Kramer. The real score is to become head of the Likud party, trounce your moderate rivals in Knesset elections, and eventually that's a thousand bucks in your pocket. Those are some sweet shekels. So the Netanyahu's didn't take this lying down. They struck back. They cut a video of their own, of their residence, with a famed Israeli interior decorator, Moshik Galamin. Sarah takes Galamin on a tour basically to prove how disgusting and run down her unextravagant home is. In this, the highlight of what I'm calling House Shadruled, we hear the two kind of freaking out about stains on a window curtain. And later they talk about how the French sent a new couch to her because the old one also had coffee stains. But what was not a stain on Israel's image in the world was that recycling story. Because there were so many news outlets that used that as the peg to proudly report that Israel is great at recycling. 59% of plastic bottles in Israel are recycled. That compares to 56% in Europe and only 31% in the United States. And I wouldn't have known this if it weren't for the Netanyahu's helpfully, and dare I say bravely, bringing the issue to the fore. On the show today, showdown in Moscow, and I spiel about front page news. I make no apology for the sepia tone I will take. But first, he was one of the richest Western investors in Russia, which of course led to problems with Vladimir Putin. Bill Browder is a man who tangled directly with Vladimir Putin. And while he lived to tell about it, that is not true of all of his associates. His story takes him from the status of a brilliant, rich Westerner investing in the newly opened Russian markets to a wanted man hunted down by thugs with ties to the Kremlin. The book is Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice. Bill Browder is the man. Hello. Thanks for coming by. Hi. Glad to be here. So... One man's fight for justice. You were thrust into that position, but you went to Russia, not as someone without ideals, but as a capitalist looking to make money. And that's what the time lent itself to. I went to Russia for a strange reason. I I, I come from an unusual American family. My grandfather, Earl Browder, 
was the general secretary of the American Communist Party in the 1930s and 40s, ran for president on the communist ticket, was eventually kicked out of the Communist Party by Stalin, persecuted as a communist by McCarthy. Even that, like Stalin doesn't like you, not good enough for McCarthy. And FDR no, was no fan of him either, right, jailed him. So he put, him, he put yeah. my grandfather in jail yeah. um, in 1940 for passport violations and tried to deport my grandmother, who at the time had breast cancer. Um, I had this legacy of, of communism in my family. And also a legacy of world superpowers targeting the Browders. Indeed. <laughs> so so my, my grandfather, if, if, the, if he had been living in any other country, he would have been assassinated by Stalin. So... This was my family history, my legacy. And I was going through my teenage rebellion. I was living on the south side of Chicago. And I thought, what's the best way that I could rebel from a family of communists? And uh, I came up with this great idea of putting a suit and tie on and becoming a capitalist. The Alex P. Keaton method, yes. There was no better way to piss off my family than that. And so you work for, eventually, Solomon Brothers? So um, fast forward a number of years, I'm in London working for Solomon Brothers. It was the beginning of the Russian privatization program. They decided that to go from communism to capitalism, the best way they could do that would be to give everything away for free. And so they created this um, voucher privatization program where where you could basically buy vouchers and then buy, buy shares of Russian companies. And I did the math. And I figured out that these companies traded at a 99.7% discount to Western comparable companies. Right. So BP, the, the Russian version of BP or the Russian version of a huge oil company was trading for one third of 1% of what it should be. One third yeah. of one cent on the dollar. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that, that you know, maybe that's an interesting investment. And that's called a buying opportunity. Um, that was called a buying opportunity. Now, now, interestingly, at the time that I was seeing this, Everyone thought I was crazy. They thought, what are you talking about? That's Russia. And I said, it, it may be Russia, but it's trading at less than one cent on the dollar. I said, all, all it has to do is go from horrible to bad. Yeah. And then you make 10 times your money. Right. Now, that's a bet that I would make every day of the week. Mm-hmm. And I did. Yeah. And I, I did, and nobody else did. And so I, I, uh, I eventually quit Solomon. I moved to Moscow, and I set up something called the Hermitage Fund. And we started out, and it just went went like gangbusters, and we eventually became the largest investment fund in Russia. So this is like 95, 96? It started in 96. Yeah. And, um, and we started before the elections in 96 when Yeltsin was running against a communist candidate. And, and the communists said he would, he would renationalize everything if he became president. And so everyone was scared. And then Yeltsin won, and the market doubled and doubled again and doubled again and just kept on doubling. And so we made a lot of money for our investors. Was it on the track to becoming a legitimate place to do business where contracts maybe would be enforced, where there'd be an actual stock market and not, you know, wheelbarrows of uh, vouchers? No, 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 it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, during the Yeltsin era, um, there was a group of people, they called, they're called the oligarchs, and 22 guys who basically hijacked the whole place for themselves and took 40% of the economy and left the other 145 million Russians living in destitute poverty Professors had to become taxi drivers to, to earn a living. Nurses prostituted themselves. Art was being sold off the walls of art museums. It was chaos and terrible. It wasn't anything that resembled goodness, truth, yeah. democracy. So this is and this is the climate to which uh, Vladimir Putin walks in. So Putin walks in, yeah. and he says, "I'm going to restore order," mm-hmm. which is never, good for you, good for investors, good for me, good yeah. for investors, good for Russians, yeah. assuming it's true. Mm-hmm. And he started restoring order, and I was cheering him on and saying, wow, Vladimir Putin is a good guy. 
Now I'm going to swoop in here for a second, interrupt our guest Bill Browder, and help summarize a few things that happened next in the story. Bill started working to make the cheap Russian companies he's invested in more legit. He used research, he used media, he exposed corruption. And this worked well with Putin, who at the time was interested in stopping asset theft. But then things changed. Putin found a way to make the oligarchs profitable to him personally, to pay fealty and literal money to him. Putin grows richer. The work Browder doing was no longer exposing Putin's enemies. Now it's exposing his friends. So guess what? Getting rid of Browder becomes a Putin priority. Okay, now back to Bill. Nine years after he founded Hermitage in Russia. And on November 13th, 2005, I was flying back to Moscow. I had been living there 10 years at this point. I was the largest foreign investor in their country. I had $4.5 billion invested in Russia. They stopped me at the VIP lounge at Sheremetyevo 2 airport, the main Moscow airport. Four guards grabbed me, and they put me in the detention center of the airport. They kept me there for 15 hours. I didn't know whether they were going to send me to Siberia or deport me. And then finally in the morning at 11 a.m., they, they grabbed me very quickly, frog-marched me to um, a, a waiting Aeroflot flight, put me on the plane, and deported me to London. Because you're a British citizen. I'm a British yeah. citizen, and, yeah. they, and they declared me a threat to national security, never mm-hmm. to return to Russia again. What happened to your assets? Well, um, so the, the one thing I can tell you about the Russian uh, system and Putin and his regime is they're extremely evil, but they're extremely incompetent at executing their evil. It seems weird, yeah. They're, they're just really bad at getting stuff done because they have... See students from D universities with no real motivation doing all the implementation of all these dirty schemes they have. So we actually had 18 months to liquidate all of our assets. We did. I I sold every last penny I had in Russia and got it all out of the country safely so our clients didn't have their money seized. I evacuated all of my employees. I had a sort of skeleton staff of a secretary sitting in an empty office in case one day they they lifted their fatwa on me. And I started getting on with other things saying I'm I'm done with, with Russia. Only Russia wasn't done with me. 18 months later, uh, June 4th, 2007, I get a call from the, our loan secretary in the Moscow office saying there's 25 police officers here with a search warrant. They want to raid the office. They turned the office upside down, completely destroyed it. And 25 more officers raided the office of, of an American law firm that I used out there called mm-hmm. Firestone Duncan. And they turned that office over. And that, that office, they had all the documents, the stamps, seals, and certificates for the investment holding companies through which we had invested, which were empty at this point. And those documents were seized. And the next thing we knew, we, we no longer owned our investment holding companies. The companies that we invested our money through had all been using the documents seized by the police, had been fraudulently re-registered into the name of a man who had been convicted of murder and let out of jail early by really? the police huh. to put his name on these documents. Yeah. So here's this guy, this murderer with his with owning, owning our companies. Now, the companies were empty, but we didn't know what was going on, and we hired a bunch of lawyers to help us, including a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. He a lawyer who worked for an American law firm. He was the head of their tax practice, mm-hmm. 35 years old, extremely competent guy. You know, there's always, like, one of these people in every sort of organization. You know, like he can do 10 things in the, in the time it takes everyone to do one. Yeah. He, um, he was the smartest lawyer we knew in Russia. And to make a long story short, his investigation led to this unbelievable discovery, which was that... The police and a group of other criminals and other Russian officials originally intended to steal all of our assets, and they discovered very quickly that there were no assets there. And so they went on to plan B, or maybe maybe it was plan, you know, double plan A, which was if we had no assets, they wanted to steal the taxes that we paid the previous year because they were the owner of our 
shell mm-hmm. investment companies. And those companies had paid $230 million of taxes the previous year when we were liquidating all of our holdings. This group of criminals stole all the taxes we paid, not from us, yeah. but from the Russian government. And Sergei discovered this. And we were all just amazed and shocked because it, the, we couldn't believe that, you know, it's one thing to steal from other people, but to steal from the government, that couldn't, how could that have been sanctioned? And we thought if we just put it out into the open, if we filed a bunch of criminal complaints, if we publicized it, that that these rogue officers would be caught and punished by Putin because he shouldn't be allowing this kind of stuff to happen. And so we did. And that was naive. And we, we were waiting for the good guys to get the bad yeah. guys. There were, there were no good guys. But in 2007, you didn't, you didn't smell that out? I mean, you're this good investor. You the, the, understand the, the, how things work. You're wise enough to liquidate and take your money away. I mean, You've the, already been kicked out of the country once. You know, there are thugs who are running the show. Let me tell you, yeah. there wasn't a, I have a lot of smart people around me, a lot of very smart people. There was not a single smart person around me who could have imagined that the place was as cynical and twisted as we found it to be. He's just taking the tax dollars for himself. He's taking everything, everything, yeah. everything, and, and, and every different type of scam. And we happened into this very much unintentionally. We were victimized by this. But when we were, we exposed it. At this point, we had seven lawyers working for us. They opened criminal cases against every one of our lawyers. I, I thought evacuating my staff was enough, but all of a sudden I was in this situation where I had to evacuate my lawyers. And I go to these guys and I say, you guys, you need to leave. And, and it wasn't an easy conversation to have with any of them. And most of them didn't want to go, but eventually one by one they left with one exception. Yeah. And that was Sergei Magnitsky. And I begged him to go. My team begged him to go. Um, but he said, no, I've not done anything wrong. And we said, no, but it doesn't matter whether you do anything wrong. They'll still arrest you. He said, no, the law will protect me. He had this belief in the law. And he said, besides, these people have committed a crime against my country, and I want to prosecute them for that crime. And so he stayed, and he gave testimony against the police officers who were present at the raid because it was obvious that they were connected to the misuse of all these documents. Mm -hmm. One month after his testimony, um, at 8 in the morning, on November 24th, 2008, um, he was arrested by uh, by, by three, three subordinates of one of the officers he testified against. He was arrested in front of his wife and two children, taken to the police station, and put in pretrial detention. Once he was in detention, they started to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in Moscow in December. He nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no um, toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And after uh, six months of this, his health started to really go into a downward spiral, and he um, he lost 40 pounds. Uh, he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and having had really severe pains in his stomach. And he was due to have an operation on, this, on the 1st of August, 2009. Roughly a week before the operation, uh, they came to him and said, if you sign a confession saying you stole the $230 million and you, and you did it at instruction of me, Bill Browder, your, your conditions will improve. And he said, no. And, you know, no one really knows what, what they would do when they're under such duress. I don't mm-hmm. think Sergei could have predicted how he would behave. I don't know how I'd behave. I don't think anyone really knows. But Sergei thought to himself, this is more, it would be more painful and more horrible to um, perjure myself than it would be to experience all this pain. Yeah, And that's just an incredible thing. I mean, th- for somebody to place their ideals above their physical above physical pain, you know, it's, it's, it's the stuff, that, you know, Bibles are written on, on this stuff. 
And Sergei turned them down, and as a result, they they moved him from a prison that had a medical facility to a prison uh, called Butyrka, maximum security prison in Moscow, a medieval prison. It's it's one of the worst prisons in Russia, and very significantly for Sergei, Butyrka has no medical facilities. And at Butyrka, um, his health completely broke down. Um, he went into constant agonizing, ear-piercing pain. And anyone who's ever had gallstones or kidney stones or anything like that will know that, that this is one of these things that, if you know, if you have it, you know, you're at the emergency room a couple hours later mm-hmm. and they give you morphine and then they, uh, you know, he had it untreated for four months and they refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests for medical attention and every single one of his requests was either rejected or ignored. And finally, after four months of this, his body gave out. Uh, he went into critical condition on the night of November 16th, 2009. At that point, the Butyrka prison officials decided to send him over to another prison that had an emergency room. So they sent him over. And when he arrived there, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him for one hour and 18 minutes until he died. He was 37 years old. And so... What does his death do for Putin strategically? Is it just revenge for you? Is it a signal? What is it? I think that that it was a couple things. One is that um, they wanted to um, shut him up because he was saying exactly what they didn't want him to say. So, you know, there's a a saying from Stalin, no person, no problem. And that's what they did to Sergei Magnitsky. After Sergei's death, Browder convinced the United States government to freeze assets to suspend the visas of those Russian torturers. Putin retaliated by banning the adoption of Russian orphans, if you remember that story. And Putin put Sergei Magnitsky on trial in 2013. So this, historically, is the first time a dead person has been tried in Europe since the year 800-something, when they did it to a former pope. Anyway, they also have a TV show in Russia. It is called The Browder List. It's a primetime show. It's propaganda blaming Browder for devaluing the ruble, for stealing money, and for murdering his former friend. They say Browder is a CIA agent and an MI6 agent. Putin is being tactical because he knows that if he picks certain prosecutions, one or two high-profile examples like Pussy Riot or Kordakovsky, then he will wield his power, not with gulags, but with symbolism and through the media. Putin has this incapacity to back down, no matter how, whatever mistake he's making. He never can, can admit fault or guilt or make a compromise. So what is the sentence now if you ever make the horrible mistake of uh, taking a trip to Russia? What sentence is on your head? Well, in, in reality, it's a death sentence because, um, I mean, I'm, I'm sen- I, I've been convicted and sentenced to nine years in a prison camp, but um, that's not the reason why they want to get me back there. They want to they want to put me to death like they did Sergei. Do you think Vladimir Putin's the most dangerous man in the world? There's no question because he's he's a he's a kleptocrat, he's a criminal, and he's got he's different than mafia criminals. He runs a state with with nuclear weapons. How could there be somebody less dangerous than that? I mean, he's the most. We we are in the most difficult moment in in the history of the last fifty years, and I don't think most people realize it. Bill Browder, author of Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance Murder and One Man's Fight for Justice. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. 
So in a second in the spiel, I'm going to talk a little bit about media and old media. And one constant story is that newspapers and magazines, Sports Illustrated, they cut the photographers. And they do so on the theory, well, it's mostly an economics play. But I think people get this idea that, hey, we all have smartphones, therefore we're all photographers. Well, we're not. And when you compare what you can do or even someone really skilled can do on a smartphone to someone who's a real photographer, you begin to see the gap, nay, the gaping maw. So to address this, if you're into photography or if you're at least interested in how to become a better photographer, you should check out a lecture series called The Fundamentals of Photography from the Great Courses. It is a great learning experience for anyone interested in taking pictures better. doesn't matter what kind of camera you have. It is taught by a professional photographer and National Geographic fellow, Joel Sartori. You learn how to use the power of your camera's settings, how to see as a professional photographer does to create better pictures. And I'm inviting you to check it out too. The Great Courses is celebrating its 25th anniversary. They have 500 courses, more than 500 courses on history, art, science, so you could get it on DVD, on CD, streaming, digital download, or with an app. Here is our offer. For a limited time, The Great Courses has a special offer for just listeners. Order from eight of their best-selling courses, including the fundamentals of photography. Get up to 80% off the original price. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. And now the spiel. I'm getting yellow around the edges. Did you see the New York Times today? They found him. They finally found him. The Jihadi Hadi. For so long, the media had this title ready to go. I know I'm in the media. They wanted to apply the Jihadi Hadi title to a hardliner who was easy on the eyes. So there were those Chechen terrorists who wanted to blow up a New Jersey military base. One had a fetching jawline, but hardly a Hadi. But this guy... Islam Yaken, front page of the New York Times, he is ripped. In photos when he lived in Cairo before he joined the fight with ISIS, he worked out a lot. He gained the physique of an NFL defensive back. He's saying every guy dreams of having a six-pack so he could go to the beach and people will check him out. So that video was a well-done online feature from the New York Times. But I wouldn't have known about the story if it weren't on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold. That is still the dominant real estate in U.S. media, more than the top story on network news or or the story of the day on cable news, the front page of Reddit or anything. But now, the New York Times itself, in a concession to what it says is net reality, is backing away from the importance of the front page. In an internal email, Times editor Dean Bacay said... We're retiring our system of pitching stories for the print page one. Desks will instead pitch their best enterprise pieces for digital slots. Desks will compete for the best digital rather than print real estate. We'll still select stories for print page one at the afternoon meetings, but the process will play a less prominent role. I'm not saying that the Times is wrong. I'm not bemoaning the passing of an era. Those constant bemoaners become frustrated loners. But this is a moment that I just wanted to mark because I love the front page as an institution. Not because it evokes Hildy Johnson or Dewey defeats Truman or extra, extra, but as a way of organizing information, I think it is far superior to the online experience. I get the New York Times delivered to my door each day. I look at the entire front page and typically I read each article to the jump. So now I have six nation narratives in my head. 
From there, I could choose where I want to go. Or I could just go and order in the paper. Sometimes I flip to page two, and half the time, that's a fresh story. It didn't even start on the front page. But that's fine. I mean, they talk about the online experience being distraction-making. Shouldn't the process I've just described with these six semi-stories in my head be the epitome of guaranteed inattention? No, no. Because as we've discussed here with Maria Konnikova, the keys to what makes the online experience more distracting has little to do with the stuff that's frequently cited, like the shortness of the text or 150 character limits or quick bursts of information. It has more to do with the web being connected to a big electronic machine that is constantly pushing information at you. And Maria also talked about in an old Is This Bullshit segment, the edge that print has over glowing electronics just in terms of retention. Think about how else a newspaper conveys information that you can't get online, like placement. Sure, the New York Times or any paper's website will on its homepage arrange the stories in a way that conveys what they think is important. But once you click on one story, that's it. You're off. You're like in an information tunnel. You don't know how long it is. Or if you want to leave, you don't know which exits are the ones worth your time. Stories in print communicate their length. You could skim the entire thing at a glance to glean information. You'd never have to swipe two or three times to get to the next word. I saw Malcolm Gladwell give a talk once, and he said that if websites came first and then someone invented a printed copy of the most important parts of a website without the distractions, that printed copy would be so valued. It would be seen as this great innovation. I think that's true. Here now I want to play a snippet of a conversation between CBS's Bob Schieffer and author Laura Hillenbrand, author of Seabiscuit and Unbroken with nonfiction books set in the 1930s and 40s. Hillenbrand told Schieffer that her method is to read newspapers from the time and then Schieffer jumps in to say. I think it also underlines the great thing about newspapers. You know, if you're looking for something online, you go directly to that until you find it. When you're reading a newspaper, you find all these other stories that you weren't particularly looking for. And, and in this case, look what that did for you. Yeah, it, if, you, if you look something up online, it's like you're wearing blinkers. If you, if you look it up in an old newspaper, you have peripheral vision, and all of a sudden you're seeing things that you wouldn't have come across. I love to look at the the house ads and, and the advertisements for hats on Fifth Avenue and things like that, and you start to really learn the time, and you can stumble on a, a book subject in my case. What they're talking about there is something that print does well and that the web struggles to replicate. The newspaper lets you know what it is that you don't know you want to know. There is discovery there that's so much harder to get in the cultivated, siloed, verticular world of the web. How lucky we are to live in a time when legacy media still exists. It's a gift, a gift that's being subsidized and will likely one day disappear. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi off at Doodles in the Gutter Space. Managing producer of Slate Podcasts, Joel Meyer, hates to see chimping out of a shooter, but personally likes to mark his territory by urinating, defecating, scratching, rubbing, or biting trees. Executive producer of Slate Podcasts, Andy Bowers, is keen on the next day TikTok, so long as it's not a thumb sucker or a puff piece. You can listen to us in iTunes. Go to iTunes. When you're there, do leave a review. I get to all of them. They inform me. I sometimes incorporate them into the show. Slate.com slash gist email is a way to sign up for a daily email. The app Yo is another way. Sign up for a podcast once you download that app. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. The Gist 
Come to us for the best slugs, the most gripping decks, and of course, Banner Woods. Thanks for listening.